Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back this episode to finish the Roger Zelazny novella, For a Breath I Terry. This is our discussion episode. I think we can probably just get right into it. There are only a few topics I want to go through in this discussion, uh, and, and maybe more will come up as we talk about the story, but I want to talk about the world building, the philosophical topics that Zelazny presents in the story, and also what he's doing with these religious parables or leaning on sort of this uh, Christian cosmology in a lot of ways. So we'll just start with world building. I don't think this is going to take up the majority of our discussion episodes because I think the world building is done pretty well on the page. But I would like to nail down the history of this world and what exactly is going on with the computers. I mean, what are they trying to achieve and to what end? Again, I think this is fairly well represented on the page. But Glenn, what is your understanding of the history of this world? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, this is the sort of thing that I I love to do, love to think about while I'm reading these types of stories. So clearly there has been nuclear annihilation or atomic, as Zelazny actually calls it in the, the story. And then our action is taking place some point in the future, but then also 10,000 years from the first sentence of the story. And then for a pretty long uh, span of time after that, we actually probably could calculate it all up if we wanted to, because Elasna usually does tell us how much time has passed between scenes. But the scale of time in this story is enormous. I mean, it is an order of magnitude larger than we think about time. We don't know when this nuclear Apocalypse. We don't know when this nuclear war happened, but I am guessing that Zelazny is imagining that this is something that happens in the near future of the 1960s. So maybe the 1960s, though probably not the 1960s themselves, but, you know, the year 2000, the year 2020, maybe something like that. I think that it, I think that Zelazny is envisioning that it's his civilization, uh, something like America of the 20th century, that is a major participant in this nuclear war. And if that is the case, then our story is actually taking place so far in the future. There's longer into the future than human civilization actually lasted, which is itself fairly interesting. But the idea here is that given the tensions of the Cold War, which I think is what Zelazny is envisioning leading to this uh, Third World War, this sort of nuclear Armageddon, uh, given the tensions of the Cold War and the fact that this seems kind of inevitable, some institution, some agency at some point constructed these computers that were going to marshal material resources to rebuild civilization for whatever the remnants of humanity are, to be a kind of backup, to be a kind of uh, workforce for the remnants of humanity to reconstruct civilization when it's all been radiated in a nuclear war. But we don't know what that institution was. Brandon, you had posited that it might be rival institutions, but I think Zelazny makes it clear that it's one institution that Divcom is the backup to to Solcom, right? The one they put in orbit, the one they put underground. It's, this does really feel like this is something the United States government did, and that might just be a kind of implicit assumption that Zelazny is making about this world. But I had to wonder if this was a United Nations enterprise, something like that. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. It, it does seem to me that because Solcom and Divcom keep fighting for dominance over the Earth, that they were programmed by maybe different nations or different, or by people with different ideological positions that kind of led into these 
differences, the the warring of these two supercomputers. And so I wonder if you see any flaws with the program of computers. For instance, were they supposed to take direction from all humans? Or is it that as humanity's population dwindled, they were able to kind of reprogram themselves to justify taking orders from any human? Because certainly I could see a huge problem of any human giving an order to any of these computers if they don't know what the goal is in rebuilding civilization. And and that's why I'm kind of wondering, like, were there different nations in charge of Solcom or Divcom? Uh, did one nation have superiority over the other? That's why Solcom is the master computer and Divcom represented as evil uh, in the story being a different ideological position than th those that created Solcom so that it's a war with it even after there are no humans. Really, again, I'm just returning to this broader question of what flaws do you see in the programming of these computers, if any? Well, we don't really understand at all in what way Solcom and Divcom actually differ from each other, other than that we're told that they do, right? We don't really know what Solcom is doing to rebuild civilization. We don't know what Solcom's cities are like, and we don't know what Divcom's cities are like, other than that we know that they're doing things differently than each other. When we just know that, and we know that they're building an infrastructure, right? There's this talk uh, in the, the one bit of battle that we actually get where a bridge is destroyed, and it's a question of... Should the bridge over that river have been placed at that point in the river or should it have been placed a few miles uh, further south or further north in some other direction? But other than that, we don't really get a sense of what are the differences? Why? What is the difference in the approach that they have to rebuilding civilization, right? Like, is this just a matter of different architectural styles? Like Divcom is uh, is making everything in brutalist architecture and uh, Solcom wants everything to be neoclassical and like that's their disagreement. <laughs> like, you know, we, we don't have any information about that. And that in itself is really interesting, given that Zelazny is setting this up as a Job. It's clear that there's a God and there's Satan here, a God and, and the devil here. Uh, but we don't really learn in what way the devil is the, the devil. And so to get back around to your question of, is there a flaw in the programming here? Yeah, it seems there definitely is a flaw in the programming here, that the programmers made the instructions really vague. Uh, which which that can be great because it allows them to adapt, allows them to weigh factors and, and make their own decisions. But it does seem to me that this notion of any of any machine, any computer is automatically programmed to follow the orders of any human. It seems as if the people who built this system, who designed this system, did not envision anywhere near the annihilation that actually happened, that they were envisioning something like half the world is destroyed or, you know, two thirds or three quarters of the population is destroyed and that this will be a quick rebuilding effort. It will really kind of be something like a big centralized organization stepping in to help localities that need help with things like repairing a bridge, fixing that building the sewer system, whatever, whether they didn't envision that the whole thing, that all of civilization would be completely annihilated and that these uh, computers or, or one computer is needing to rebuild the whole thing for nobody. Yeah, I think that's right. And it seems to me as though Divcom is mainly quibbling with Solcom, you know, over the placement of bridges or what cities are supposed to look like or what how they're supposed to function in a way to prove his logical dominance over Solcom, 
rather than as an attempt to uh, subvert the prime directive of rebuilding for humanity. I have another question here uh, about the story and kind of about the world, which is now that Beta and Frost have transferred their matrix into the human brain this is very like i've been watching a lot of star trek voyager this is like all they talk about <laughs> holograms, like holograms <laughs> and stuff like this the, the the design matrix and stuff like that uh do you think it's going to be the case that more computers will become people uh now that this man factory is up and running or do you think that beta and frost are just going to repopulate the world organically yeah here's the thing with this that Two people is not actually enough to repopulate the earth. And, and in fact, neither is six, which is, I think is what we're told Frost has. He's, he's created six bodies, though it is a man factory, so he can keep making mans, I guess, and, and maybe do that. Because genetic science suggests that we need a minimum of 50,000 individual homo sapiens in order to be able to have uh, continued viability, right? So in a disaster, there would need to be a minimum of 50,000 of us left in order to uh, have enough genetic uh, variability to have viability for you know, for far into the future at that point. This is something that actually always bothered me about Battlestar Galactica, where they start out with, I think, 53,000 people, and then four episodes in are down to 48. And I'm just like, oh, I can't watch this series now because the whole <laughs> the whole premise is is bunk. It doesn't doesn't matter if they make it or not. This is not enough people. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. It, it is a puzzling question in this story uh, and kind of leads us to wonder, again, like we saw with Keys to December, like just who this story is for in the world is this a new creation myth is this you know written to be orally transmitted to generation after generation and we have the first two humans being beta and frost instead of adam and eve i mean what's your sense on the style the story is written in and who it's for besides you know the contemporary audience being concerned about nuclear war again this is the third Zelazny story that we've done, and it is the third time that we have taken a look at the story as being a material object of the story itself. And I definitely feel like this is a story that exists in the world of the descendants of Frost and Beta and maybe the uh, 48,998 uh, other <laughs> mans that they build in the, the man factory, uh, that this is maybe part of their scripture part of their official shared history, right? This is the story they tell themselves about how they came to, to be, which is really interesting. I would love to read that story. I would love to read about the people who have this story, who know that they are the descendants of machines who were built by humans, who then grew humans in a lab and transferred their machine consciousnesses into the humans. I, I want to know what that society a thousand years later looks like. Right. It would be so fascinating to see what that society looks like uh, because there's that one puzzling line that we brought up in the recap episode about violating the tradition of orders. And that doesn't seem to me to be something that's important to computers, but would be important to a culture as they're developing uh, traditions and norms and culture and civilization and things like that. Yeah, exactly. What type of society do computers create now that they're in an organic body? 
I mean, I really love the parts about this story that are about what it means to be a human, what it means to experience the the world as a human and the real emphasis on uh, aesthetic as a key part of that, the ability to uh, feel, the ability to appreciate beauty as well. All of those things I think are really awesome. But the, but the question of whether or not Beta and Frost jettison their logic as the fundamental organizing principle of how they exist, of how they perceive the world and how they think about what they're supposed to do. Do they lose that? Or is that something they're bringing with them into these organic bodies? And so the civilization that they build is going to is going to be a lot more regimented than human societies tend to be. Are they going to, is Frost, are, are Frost and Beta going to behave like Solcom with their their kids and their their grandkids and great grandkids? Yeah, it's a it's an open question, but it's worth pondering. I think uh, before we get into this, you know, what makes a person a person stuff and the trek through philosophy that Zelazny takes us on. I have one more question about world building here, uh, which is about Frost. I, I want to know, Glenn, what you think makes Frost unique among other computers, and what you think the Solar Flare has to do with Solcom making Frost so great. That's the wrench in the question that I was just asking, because we are assured, we are promised at the top of the story that Frost is not merely a computer, not merely a robot, that there is something special about him, something special, but also incomprehensible, something that Solcom doesn't himself understand, doesn't comprehend. Uh, And it is here assigned to this solar flare. But I think that we're meant to understand that there is a kind of divine intervention here, a kind of divine spark, or maybe if we want to think in a non-religious terms, just the type of happy accident that was the initial chemical process that led to the first life forms on our planet, that there is some kind of accident here that makes Frost fundamentally different from other computers, other robots, makes him something else that enables him to become a, a, a person that he just has to create the body to get himself in. Though I will say that by the end, I'm a little puzzled about Beta, who seems also to exhibit some of these same characteristics, who even while she doesn't know the definition of the word sorry, she exhibits being sorry. She exhibits being apologetic, even though she can't label that, right? She is behaving with emotions before she even knows what emotions are. Yeah, the creation of Beta and what her role is in the story. I mean, her role is very clear in the story, but how she became the way she is is almost undermines uh, what Frost is doing in terms of developing emotions or uh, aligning himself or being sympathetic to what humanity was. For me, the thing that makes Frost different is a sense of intentionality and having a hobby. He has intentional goals outside of his commands and pursues them. And that is, I think, something that is uniquely human. Um, But all of these computers seem to be artificial intelligences in some way that can do this. I mean, Divcom has goals against Solcom. Solcom has goals against Divcom. But I think Frost is unique in that he has that kind of romantic spirit of individuality and intentionality, uh, you know, goal setting behavior that is apart from that removes him from and allows him to explore beyond the limits of his 
uh, creation, the limits of his body, the limits of his uh, inherited sense of order in the world. And that is something I think that allows him to take those steps to become human. I think it's worth pointing out here as well that Zelazny has ad- adopted also what would have been the the typical the standard gender norms of his of his own day here in which Frost who is the male here even though of course right the computer itself doesn't have a, a, a sex in that sense but that he is the male he is the man who has hobbies and interests and is curious about the world and also trying to uh, to understand to control the world you know he's trying to 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 label things right but beta has similar impulses she just has the 1950s female impulses, the 1950s feminine impulses here, which is to say that she has an impulse towards companionship and that she regrets that she was not able to welcome Frost to her territory and for them to be friends. Yeah, that is absolutely worth pointing out as well. And it's not long after we meet Beta that she comes to be referred to as a she. So yeah, these gender norms are in place in this story. Well, let's move on to the philosophical topics of this story. Uh, you know, and these broadly fall under the categories of epistemology and phenomenology, which is, you know, what knowledge is and how we get it, and what our experience of the world is, and aesthetics, which is our understanding of beauty in the world, and the making of a human being, what a human being actually is, what personhood is, what it requires to be a person. So let's just start by digging into the philosophical journey that Frost takes in for a breath I tarry. You know, first he starts by having some curiosity about human objects, and he spends a lot of his downtime having his army of robots send him off to study these objects and bring them back to him so he can process these objects. And from there, he tries to learn about humanity from their explanations and explorations of the world through language, their concepts that they build. And at first, he seems to believe that if he acquires the right knowledge, he will be like them. And this is really the problem of how empiricism fails or fails to be a full, comprehensive philosophy of the human being, of the scientific revolution, of the failures of the Enlightenment. And I want to know, Glenn, how you think this approach fails for Frost. You know, for me... This is Frost encountering the first epistemic problem, which is what knowledge is, under what conditions can it still be considered knowledge or truth or valuable, and how do we even acquire knowledge, and how does it generate meaning? In the recap, you mentioned philosophy of mind, right? This uh, question about what are our minds, but also what is our self? What is our identity? Where is that located? And there has been at, at various times in our culture a tendency to view our bodies as just meat sacks that our brains are stored in, that our that our ourselves, that our identities are are stored in. And not just philosophically. I mean, there's a long religious tradition of this as well, that the body doesn't matter. That's not the thing that matters. But Zelazny in this story seems to really be taking the tack that the body definitely matters, that the body is crucial to the understanding of what it means to be a person, what certainly what it means to be a human, that without the body, you can't really be a human being, that a machine simply cannot be a human because it is not able to experience the world through organic 
senses, which is such an important part of what it is to be a human. This actually strikes me, though, though you might tell me that I'm totally wrong because I don't really know about the history of these questions. But it strikes me that at the time that Zelazny is writing this story, philosophy of mind is leaning the other way, that maybe Zelazny's reacting uh, against that. And I will say as well that this is also something that we see in Star Trek, right? This is basically the Kirk, Bones, Spock dynamic here, where we've got uh, Bones and the one hand is super emotional and Spock is super logical, that they are in some ways having a disagreement about the philosophy of mind, among among other things, and that we've got that going on in this story as well. Yeah, uh, we're certainly seeing a kind of brain in the fat experiment that is a experiment about uh, pure materialism. If everything comes and extends from the brain in the human body, if we figured out how that worked and could stimulate just the right portions of the brain, would people even need bodies? Or could we maintain the, the illusion of personhood by just stimulating the right portions of the brain? Um, and And that's a question I think that philosophy of mind has moved away from i i am more partial to zelazny's approach here which is that uh our knowledge is embodied that our understanding of the world is absurd is subservient to the fact that we are what we call human beings that we are bodies and that our understanding of the world extends actually a little beyond our bodies through you know we see this through uh proprioception of our senses of what's around us in the world, our ability to navigate the world, that it's a very complex system of understanding and that you can't just take the brain out of the body, if that's where the mind is, and probe it and stimulate it to give it the same experiences. It's it's also like a mind transfer question, like, are we are who we are because our minds are in our bodies? If we put a brain our brain into a different body, would we even have the same experiences as other people? And and I think Frost understands this problem on a rudimentary level. And that's why he tries to build these sensory organs and limit his perceptions so that he can try to experience the sublime and awe and these romantic conceptions of beauty um, that are really explored by, by Edmund Burke and by Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley, and uh, a lot of these early um, romantic thinkers, these people who were exploring sublime and beauty and aesthetic judgment. But even his ability to limit his perceptions and build these sensory organs doesn't give him the sense of sublime, doesn't give him a sense of awe, doesn't lead him to experience beauty i'm talking about frost here not burke or any of the any of the shelley uh the wollstonecraft shelley gang here um and and why do you think that is then if why do you think frost is barred from experiencing the sublime or awe in this way i don't know that he is barred from it i mean our story ends you know with just this one coda that's six months later and all zelazny really tells us is that he learns to walk and talk we don't get him back in the redwoods, in his meat sack, 
you know, right, right. Uh, and I would have, I would have liked, I would have liked that because I have to, I, because I imagine that finding yourself in any other body is going to be a terrifying experience uh, more than it is anything else. I mean, it's at least going to be, you know, a 51 49 split on the, the, the terror versus sublime experience <laughs> there, even just switching from one meat sack to another, let alone switching to an entirely different encasement right i mean what would i I mean i imagine that the opposite would be true too right that if if a a human had switched from a body to uh, just a machine or or to become just a brain in the vat that that first experience would be would be terror Uh, the first thing he would say is i fear as well but it is interesting to your point that zelazny doesn't show us the sublimity of being a person even though frost is i think clearly convinced of this the whole story that that's the implicit thing that is driving him that even with the probing questions of uh, beta like the sort of two-year-old type questions the sort of endless endless questions of why but why but why frost never gets to the bottom of it but i think there at the bottom is this sense that it's better to be a person but we don't see him come to know that no we don't and it it is what he's seeking after and then that's why so much of this story i think is caught up in aesthetics you know frost maybe thinks if he can understand the most non-logical of human activities then he'll be able to grasp what humanity is about Uh, but frost can't quite grasp art though frost and mordell do spend a lot of time speculating about the nature of art is art pure expression is it about capturing some kind of significant experience or some level of significance and representing that? Is art about representation of something in the real world? Is it about the ability to make abstractions of, of, about what art is? Like, you know, in the abstract art movement, like the colors on this portion of the canvas look really good when, when it's representing something in the world or the painting is telling a story. What is the experience of putting those colors purely on the canvas and looking at them as colors? Does it have the same impact? You know, that's abstract art. How how do these explorations fall short then for Frost of making something that operates purely on logic and a different set of perceptions become human? Why does exploring art and aesthetics fail for Frost? Well, again, I think this goes back to the philosophy of mind, of does art exist without a human eyeball or human ears? We could even ask, what's the experience of the golden age of television for our house pets, right? Well, nothing, right? Other than that, uh, we we make nice laps for our cats to get on while we're uh, spending inordinate amounts of time on, on the couch, right? So I think that it has to go back to this problem of human art is for humans to experience with their human organs and process with their human brain, which is a human organ. And that that's why, you know, Frost simply can't get it. You can't just do the things that humans are doing and suddenly transform yourself into a human. You do definitely need the body as far as Elasny is concerned. Yeah. I think that that notion is all over the story and, and, you know, we're talking again about this sense of embodied knowledge that being a human and having intentionality and will and a desire to understand has led humans to make tools, but also to represent meaning through this really complex network of symbols that belong to a community, not just to an individual. And I think part of why 
aesthetics and the move to aesthetics fails for Frost is that he has no access to the experience of what it means to be born into a deep network of symbolism and born into a community in progress. He is just looking at pictures of people and he doesn't know what like, uh, you know, what a white, white rose might mean in a painting or he, the nuances of the way paintings can tell stories. Um, I, I can only imagine him looking at something like a Pieta and having zero understanding of it other than from a purely technical basis. It's because the symbols that are present in the Pieta, the language that surrounds it, the community that that kind of artwork belongs to simply does not exist for Frost and he has no understanding of it. And I think we're also led to this question that Zelazny seems to be asking in this text, which is, are humans makers, uh, creators, you know, this old idea of poetry as, as posy, as making, as creating, is there something bigger than humans that can only be expressed through art that hint at something indelible, something uh, not understandable uh, in the same way that computers are servants to logic, but that because humans created logic, they're above it. You know, it's almost like the quest the question that Zelazny is asking is what is above humans that created art that humans are servants to in some way? That's an amazing question. I do have some things to say about it, but I want to backtrack to, to something else that you were talking about just a minute ago, which is to, to think about why Zelazny spends so much time on the creation of art, on having Frost make art to try to understand what it is to be a, a, a human. But we don't really get any kind of extended scene of Frost really looking at a specific work of art. And trying to understand it, trying to understand what it was for, what it might mean, how a person might respond to it. I think that's a harder thing to write, but that would have been an interesting scene. I would have liked to have seen Frost and Mordell uh, looking at uh, a Pieta or uh, Mona Lisa or something like that and trying to trying to comprehend it. But to your question about whether or not there's some bigger entity or force or something that compels humans to be creators, I mean, I think that's an absolutely fascinating question. I don't know anything at all about the tradition of the philosophy of art or the philosophy of aesthetics. And in fact, we haven't talked about that very much on the almost 200 podcast episodes you and I have done together. <laughs> I think the only time we've really talked about this was when we did the Kurt Vonnegut story on Patreon, which we did, got, I mean, like years ago now. But I am interested in these types of questions because it does seem to me that art is one of the few things, it might even be the only thing, that humans do that other types of creatures on the planet don't do. I would be interested in being told that I'm wrong, that three-toed sloths are actually great sculptors for just for the <laughs> sake of it, or something like that. That would be amazing. But it does strike me that things like storytelling, like painting, sculpture, uh, and so on, that these are things that humans do that other creatures don't do. Even our closest biological relatives, uh, chimpanzees, bonobos, uh, other apes, and so on. Uh, dolphins, we don't see them doing this right, but we see we do see those animals exhibit all sorts of other behaviors that humans do, including making war, but we don't see them making 
art. And so there's a real sense in which this is the thing that makes us who we are. This is the thing that makes us distinct. And if you are a, a religiously minded person, if you're someone who believes that there's something divine about the, the universe, that there's something divine maybe about humans, I think it would be real easy to point to this and to see that the thing that makes humans special, the thing that makes humans different from other creatures is the ability to create or, or, or sub-create, as, as Tolkien would say, because creation is something that only the creator can, can do in his worldview. Uh, but that this, is something, that this is something of our divine commandment, perhaps. That is certainly an idea that I think Zelazny is engaging with, that art even goes beyond the symbols that bind us together as a community or the or being arrested by an object of beauty, something that leads us to create and and then create out of an overwhelming sense of uh, being spurred on by something beautiful or something inspirational or something significant to make beauty out of something tragic like the Pieta. And, and I think Zelazny's a real romantic here. I, I think he is leaning on the philosophies of romanticism, the idea of the sublime, the idea of what the creator has given us to enjoy, to take pleasure in, what our role and responsibility in that pleasure is. And I do think Zelazny is saying that you know, humans can create logic, for instance, and because they can create it, they're above it. But because humans don't always know what they're creating when they make art, there must be something above them that does know, something that made them that they're referring to. And this is kind of a, a, a theological position that he's taking almost, something that points to a greater being than humans that drives us to create. And and if you're a Christian or uh, in that tradition of religion where you're using, you know, the Pentateuch or any element, any part of the uh, Old Testament or New Testament, that divine image, part of that is part of a response to being imprinted with that divine image is the desire to make, the desire to create. And I, and I do think that Zelazny is both kind of pointing to his own uh, religious beliefs or theology at some point, and also to his real commitment to romanticism as an artistic movement. But now I just want to ask the the big overarching question that we've kind of moved through some of these uh, philosophical thickets is just in summary, what do you think Zelazny is saying about humanity in this story, both what is an individual human and what is humanity at large? I think one thing we both agree on that we think is pretty definitive here in the story is that Zelazny is very much highlighting the importance of our embodied experience, our sensory experience in what it means to be a, a human. Uh, that may not necessarily have to be what it means to be a person. Uh, I mean, as a science fiction writer, Zelazny definitely goes on to think about other types of persons, non-human types of persons. I mean, I think these, all of these, in fact, I think all of these robots would qualify uh, for that as well, but what it means to be a human being. 
But as you've pointed out, there is so much emphasis here on creation, on art, on the appreciation of beauty, that there is also a sense of what it means to be a human in the environment, in in both the natural environment, but then also in a a human-constructed environment. I mean, we should keep in mind that the whole backdrop of this story is machines reconstructing the built human environment for people. Uh, Our built environments, our our cities, our towns that we live in uh, are a huge part of of who we are. And that seems to be something that Zelazny is pointing to here as as kind of a necessity, as something that that humans are going to need and we need to build machines to keep that intact for us. I, I totally agree with that. And I think one other thing that Zelazny is pointing to is what it means to be a human is to be a master of the tools, to not become uh, used by the tools that we make, uh, which might be a concern as he's thinking about computers and artificial intelligence and robots, but to maintain our mastery over the tools that we make. And maybe we should be making tools that aid us in creation rather than tools that continue to destroy and well, and I think that that goes along with the the role, the place of of humans in their environments as well, both the, the natural environment and the the built environment. And clearly, we are here given imagery of new Adam and Eve. That this is uh, maybe a new Eden, right? This this perfect world is being constructed for them by these uh, uh, by these robots. And there's a real sense here that what the world is for, what this new world is going to be for, is to make art, to to create things, but then also to be stewards of the planet, both the the redwood forests, but then also the the tools, right, to be the the steward, to be the commander of both Divcom and Solcom and all of their subordinate machines to have dominion over the over the planet but to take care of the planet and i think that that's in stark contrast to the backstory that's in stark contrast to what's the inciting incident for the world if not for the actual story which is the nuclear annihilation of you know circa the year 2000 or whenever it may have happened that that zelazny is envisioning here a new start for humanity a kind of do-over right that we blew it all up you know we screwed it up before that we lost the thing we lost sight of the thing that makes us special that makes us unique we lost sight of the thing that we are here for but now here's a chance to to do it again and so this emphasis on environments and this emphasis on aesthetics and art and creation i think are zelazny really outlining what he thinks is the most important part of the human condition and what an ideal human society would prioritize well, I want to move on now since you brought up Adam and Eve a few times and this idea of new humanity <laughs> and a new Eden. Uh, I want to move on to the religious aspects of this story, or at least the allusions that Zelazny makes. We have this reference to Job that we talked about. Uh, Zelazny himself described this tale as a Faustian tale, uh, and he's really thinking about Goethe's Faust, not Marlowe's here. Um, and the idea that the world is being prepared, a new world is being made for humans that they didn't have to labor for. This is the idea of the new Jerusalem, that Christ has gone away and is preparing a place for us. And this is an echo of the promised land where God has prepared a perfect city for the Israelites uh, as they're wandering, and they just have to go in and conquer it, uh, except for the new Jerusalem 
no conquering is needed. It's it's being done in a place that doesn't require violence to make. It's it's uh, you know a perfect idea. It's peaceful. It's peaceable. So I want to look at the these aspects of the story, and I don't really have too much to say about them. I just wonder what you think Zelazny is doing by threading these ideas into the story, and I wonder if you think that these ideas add or take away from the other topics, you know, the philosophical issues, philosophy of mind issues that Zelazny is working with. Do you think Zelazny is just using this as a framework? And if so, how does it function for you in terms of storytelling? One of the things that really struck me about this story is that the the whole time that I was reading it, I felt like I was reading a science fiction retelling of Job. It's not until the end when I, I read the notes that we get here in these uh, NESFA editions that Zelazny, I guess, thought he was mostly writing a uh, a retelling of, of Faust. Both stories are about uh, two people making a bet and then also about the the object of that bet, the, the person who is the object of that bet, I suppose. Uh, this does actually still to me, though, feel more like Job than Faust, though I do see the clear parallels there. And there's a lot going on with the names and so on as well. But what I think really stands out to me that makes this Jobian rather than Faustian is that Job is asking whether humans are fundamentally good or evil, about whether they can remain good even through hardships. And I think that that's the question Zelazny is asking as well. He's looking around at the the Cold War as it exists in the 1960s, uh, the arms race getting started, the space race getting started. In fact, uh, at this point in the early 1960s, Americans definitely thought they were losing both the arms race and the space race and really feeling like everything is hurling towards Armageddon and wondering about the human condition, wondering about us. Are we flawed? Are we fundamentally evil? Are we really going to do this thing? Or is there something good in us? Are we fundamentally good? Can we rise to challenges? Can we rise to the occasion? And that felt more like Job to me than than Faust. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I really see his playing with Faust as a framework for the story more than as being what he's driving at. It was a starting point. It was the germ of the idea, but he kind of edited a lot of the Faustian elements out of the story, um, but kept some in as well because it is the structure of the story, of the plot, at least, maybe not the story. I have not yet determined as a reader of this story whether or not the Adam and Eve stuff and the New Jerusalem stuff really adds or takes away from the philosophical and aesthetic engagements that... Zelazny's working with. I'm I'm not quite sure they hang together. And even as a Jobian story, I'm not really sure that we see Frost suffering on any level. And it seems to me as though the main thrust of this story is about an expression of personhood as being one who can exist within a network of complex symbols, language, visual media, art, whatever, and relate to others in that way without ever really realizing they're primarily engaging in these kinds of symbolic uh, meanings and exchanging symbolic meanings and looking at the failures of you know, pure empiricism or the 
edicts of the Enlightenment to explain enough of humanity, that there's more left over from these explanations that needs to be explored. And so I, I just don't know if these illusions work for me in this story as Zelazny intended. Well, it sounds to me like you're really asking a craft question, which is, do we need Frost to be motivated by the manipulations of Mordell? And do we need all of this to be coming from this bet between Sulkan? And do we need all of this to be motivated in turn by the bet between Solcom and Divcom? Do we need that device, that, that narrative device? Or would this story be stronger if Frost were just one of these robots engaged in this project of rebuilding human civilization, even though there are no humans left, and maybe doing all of the things that get done in this story, but doing them on his own. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a part of what I'm getting at, because I do think there's a way to tell the story with kind of Frost on his own and having his own awakening. I do like the creator and creation aspect of Frost. I think that hangs well together with the aesthetic questions in the story. Why are we makers? What makes Frost unique? Why should he be the one that has this awakening and this intentionality and will that lead him to remake humanity? You know, why is he questioning what are we for if there are no people? It's a great question i mean asking the question what are people for is a good question to ponder every once in a while too um but i just i don't think these illusions strengthen what i see as the main thrust of the story D do you see them working well for you or do they are they a misstep in in your sense of reading of the story I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that they're a, a, a misstep. And I enjoy literary illusions just on their own. It's just a fun game for me. It's something I really quite enjoy. And I did get a lot of pleasure out of trying to guess, trying to figure out where this version of Job was going and what Zelazny's point was. And so in some sense, this gave me something to, to hang on to while I was reading the story. It showed me the framework that Zelazny was, was using to hold the thing together and allowed me to think ahead to try to fill in the blanks. And for me, that was an entry point. That was a... Uh, that was something that allowed me to buy into the, the story. And so I really enjoyed that part of it to be thinking about in what way is this like Job and how is this going to turn out? I, for me, that was a lot of fun. But I see, but I can see your criticisms of this as well. Yeah, I mean, the jury is still out for me. I'll have to think about it a little more, but I, I'm just not quite sure. I do think this story is a kind of an excellent story, and there's a lot to it, a lot to think about. Um, and and I'm just wondering whether these two pieces are kind of enjammed together or whether there would be more strength in letting some of these other ideas breathe a little bit. And, th and that's really the, the main thrust of the question I'm getting at. Well, I think I have felt this way about all three of the Zelazny stories that we've encountered, which is to say that each of these stories could have been longer, that each of them, they're all novellas. So I guess Keys to December was technically a novelette, but they all could have been longer. They all could have actually been full novels. And I would have read those novels. I, I think this is probably the one that I liked the least of the three that we've done for this uh, batch of commissions that was so awesome to receive. But I also think that this is the one that I actually would have liked more of. I think that I could have read an entire novel of this, would have liked to have seen almost 
every aspect of this uh, fleshed out more, given more room to breathe, to, to balance out some of those things that you're talking about. But I do think you've raised a lot of interesting questions about both the, the themes, the way they all work together, and also the, the the craft of this. And I think something we often do when we are talking about craft is to invite people to come to the forum and uh, write some fan fiction. If you want to novelize this story, if you want to expand on this, I would definitely read that. That would be a, a lot of fun. So come to the forum and uh, uh, talk with us about these things. And well, I guess if I'm making a call to the forum, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. As always, you can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. I just want to remind you that we have two other Zelazny stories right now uh, live in both our Elder Sign podcast and the Gene Wolf Literary podcast. So if you liked this, definitely check out those stories. And as I said, please do come to the forum or join us on our subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media, and talk with us about all of the questions that we raised in this story, including where you fall on the philosophy of mind. Could we be people if we were just brains in a vat? Or do we need these meat sacks that we're imprisoned in? I also want to say huge thanks again to the Patreon supporter who commissioned all three of these episodes and one more as well. This was an amazing opportunity for us, and we hope that you, the other listeners, have enjoyed these stories as much as we have. And of course, if you would like to commission an episode or episodes of your own, we would love to do that for you. So please be in touch. Next time, we'll be back with another awesome episode, probably about something awesome, but we do not know what that is yet because we have not seen the results of that Patreon vote, but you can always find out by looking at the Elder Sign page on claytemplemedia.com. So until next time, we greet you and say farewell.